Welcome back to another episode of the Task Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings on in the world of school psychology, education, and in general, just life. Um, as always, I am your host, Chris Ponce, and joining me today, I have Brooke Roberts. What's going on, man? Hey, Chris. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. We are also here joined with uh, by uh, Ashley Arnold, our uh, NASP Texas delegate and uh, hot, hot uh, straight from the, the, uh, uh, the Capitol today, right? Yes, indeed. It, it was, in fact, a hot day, both uh, figuratively and literally today. Yes, in Austin, our capital city. So, yes. Welcome, Ashley. We're glad to have you. We're going to uh, just give a little bit of update for the listeners and our members. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the goings-ons in the, uh, in the NASP and uh, what NASP is doing for us and how we can be involved, but also a little bit about your busy, busy day. But first... Okay, here's here's my here's my thought, right? The transfer portal. If you're a college, if you're a college sports fan, right, the transfer portal is huge. Football players, basketball players, softball players, baseball, basketball, whatever it is, they if they don't like the school that they're at, they don't like the team that they're on, if they want a better deal, they jump into the transfer portal and then that gives opportunities for other universities and colleges and teams to come and get them. We're in our world, we're in our society, would you like to see the transfer portal show up besides college athletics? Can you I mean, imagine? we kind of already have it in education. You can put your name on a transfer list at the end of the year and, and hope somebody picks it up. So really education for once has been a, in front of the curve for oh, okay. you know, like a decade right. or two. Okay. <laughs> you didn't answer my question, Chris. Where would you like for it to be? I think it's too hard to think of a straight. Do you already have an answer? Because in no. my mind, like, it's like what living arrangements, because you can just do that. Like, yeah. I, you know, I kind of think about it in terms of travel. You know, have you ever been on a vacation and you're so excited about it and then you get there and you're like, oh, this really <laughs> wasn't what I was thinking, but you've already paid for it. Like you're took the time off. Okay. Like it'd be nice when you're in that situation to be like, you know what? I'm entering the transfer portal and immediately you could then be, you know, transferred to another vacation location. See, that's a, my job here is done. That's <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> and, and that's why Ashley's on the show. Exactly. Well, Brooke, did you have an answer? Because it was a really good question. No, I was really thinking more about um, I would like to put somebody in the transfer portal, maybe from time to time. <laughs> maybe there's, maybe there's, a, there's some psychoanalytical way to look at this and how you approach the question in the way Brooke approached it and Ashley approached it. <laughs> in an optimistic and pessimistic type of way. I need you out of here, Ashley. Like, I need me out of here. So. <laughs> All right. Speaking of travel, Ashley uh, just got back from El Paso. Last week she was at uh, South Padre Island. How was how was the TASP Summer Institute, Ashley? You know, the TASP Summer Institute was great. It was our first time uh, down in the valley, RGV. Shout out down there. Um, we had been planning it pre-COVID, so it had been in the works for a couple of years. Um, so we were excited to finally be down there. Um, you know, the impotence of Summer Institute for TASP was to hold it in underserved areas of our state. You know, so locations that aren't easily accessible by our fall convention, which are typically held, you know, in our large urban cities. So um, Summer Institute's been in Corpus, uh, Corpus Christi for several years. One year we went up to Northeast Texas in Texarkana and partnered with our Arkansas uh, school site colleagues up there. 
And then uh, right before COVID, we were in Houston and we did prepare training, both uh, prepare workshops and train the trainer. Um, so it was nice to finally get back to kind of an original summer institute. Um, so being down on the island, I mean, TASP didn't have to do a lot of convincing for me. School psychology in the beach, I'm there. Um, and thankfully, about 114 other people agreed with me. Um, and so, you know, it's nice with the Summer Institute, sort of a casual setting um, with that. And then um, it's totally focused on mental health. Um, so we don't have any sessions on assessment. Um, we're really looking at mental health, um, grief, uh, social emotional learning. Um, so it's always, for me, I've always found it a nice time to re-energize myself during the summer. And um, it was exciting to finally be in person and be down in the valley. Um, and what was surprising is we even had a attendee that came all the way from the state of Montana. Um, and so she wins the award for furthest traveled. Shout and out to Sue. Yes, shout out to Sue, and she was uh, quite excited by it and wanted to know if we were going to continue to hold it in South Padre, because she was then going to bring, I think, all of Montana's school psychologists down next summer, if we should do that. So, I'm excited to meet all 37 of them. Right? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought Summer Institute was a success. Um, shout out also to our uh, partner, uh, University of Texas, um, RGV. Um, they were our partner in that, and they, they right. did a quite a bit of uh in-kind support for that as well yes. um but yeah i think good time was had by all did you uh did you go see spacex i did not i did consider mm. it um because we were close and um another exhibitor friend they had gone out and saw it uh and actually i happened to be out the week prior for region one summer conference and on that flight down uh lots of spacex people were on that flight so i really <laughs> wanted to um, but I know we, we, we did not make it out there. So uh, I guess that's a, that's a plug for next year. What I next can do. Year. I had some of the freshest shrimp that I think I've had in a very, very long time. No fresh um, shrimp in Lubbock? No, 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 no 37 days to get there. So. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so it was, it was good. We had a good time. I'm glad that we're able to do it in person again, too. The past few years has been all virtual, but I know there's an underserved community down there that, really does appreciate that type of stuff and they turned out and they they did they turned out and they ate it up so it was it was a good time ashley so you're here to to kind of give us an, a nasp update um as our texas delegate we uh actually uh we're just we're just talking that this is dr laurie close's last night as nasp president uh so she's wrapping that up in the next few hours tell us a little bit about what's been going on with nasp yeah, so yes, let's uh, let's you know give snaps to Dr. Laurie Close, the first female from Texas to be NAS president. So super excited about that and all the work that she's done um, for us. So I'd say most recently with NASP is what's been going on is um, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Um, that was the Gun Violence Act um, that was recently signed into law by President Biden. And you know what was unique about this is this was like the first gun violence congressional bill like since the 90s um, that had been done. And so not only you know did it have some improvements to exist 
existing gun laws, but it was also combined with funding to support increased access to mental health services. And we, we, we should here in Texas give a shout out to our U.S. Senator John Cornyn. He was the sponsor of this bill and did a lot and a lot of work for that. And so I know NASP sent out some advocacy um, action alerts for folks to email um, with that in the, you know, the, the last couple of days because Senator Cornyn's office was getting a lot of opposition to that. Um, and so thank you to everyone that did that. Really what it is, is it gives um, a billion, that, was, that would be a B, not an M, a billion dollar investment into the school-based mental health services grant program and the school-based mental health service professionals demonstration grant as well. And so while it did not have everything that, you know, NASP had kind of looked for as far as terms of gun violence and access to that, we, we do want to recognize, you know, that there was addressing the, sh- the shortages, you know, with putting that money into school psychs really looks to the administration's view on comprehensive school psych services, which does include mental and behavioral health care as well. And so, you know, as a prepare trainer, we always talk about balancing the physical safety with the psychological safety. And uh, we know here in Texas, there's a lot about hardening of the schools and the physical safety. I personally was very pleased that there was some, it wasn't just about gun violence and supporting mental health efforts as well to implement evidence-based strategies um, as well. So, you know, NASP, you know, was a little disappointed um, as far as the gun safety policies that, you know, didn't quite go as far. Um, NASP uh, did have a resolution put out earlier about to support efforts to prevent gun violence, which did include bans on high-powered weapons and high-capacity ammunition, increased research on gun violence, and improved enforcement of existing laws. But we do... We, we do want to commend Congress and the president for signing this because it is an admirable step in the right direction. Hopefully with this right step, we can see some progress um, in this as well. So how should we, those of us who are boots on the ground, how, how should we see some of this money be become available? What, how will it make a difference for us? Yeah, so I think that the two things were the grant programs. And, you know, this is something that, you know, NAS frequently puts out these opportunities about these federal grant opportunities, and people just don't know what to do. So the mental health professionals demonstration grant is where the, your school district is the lead applicant but you partner up with somebody and it's to support partnerships to train school-based mental health providers for school-based employment. So there was a state, I believe it's Iowa, um, that a school district partnered with the local university there to train school-based mental health providers um, for school-based employment with that. So that's one. And that's really for boots on the ground. That's what's available. The school-based, the other grant program, the school-based mental health services grant program is for state education agencies. So that would be TEA would need to apply. And that one is to support efforts to increase the number of mental health service providers in high need school districts as well. Um, So that one's for TEA to look at, but definitely, you know, I would encourage in those cities where you have a university and you have a school psych program to look into the mental health professionals demonstration grant. The problem is, is with our universities, they're familiar with grant opportunities. They know how to apply. They're used to that school districts, not so much. Um, But really 
you know, we've talked about this with TAS for a long time of, you know, having, forming those partnerships, um, you know, and that's really where if you work in a town that has a university and a school district, you can really make some improvements there with, you know, finding qualified mental health service providers. So with the, the, the second one that you were talking about, the, uh, the services mm-hmm. um, that you would, we would expect to see TEA then roll out some funding opportunities for school districts to apply for it at some point, possibly. Well, yeah. So TEA has to apply for that grant themselves and yeah. then they then um, can sub grant out to other institutions for that. Yes. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. When, uh, do we do we have a time frame on when we might see these funds become available and applications rolling out? No, they um, they're still working on that. Um, I believe it should be coming up soon, um, but I do not know a specific timetable for that. Okay. Any has there been any new? I know that wasn't it uh, Biden's budget was somewhere approved in March or April, or 111 million dollars for school district school-based mental health type stuff to try to increase the number of school psychologists and nurses and counselors? Part of that money is the grant that I just mentioned as well. Okay. Part of that money was from that. So, yes. Wow. So NASP is really uh, trying to trying to get them out. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's been a really kind of energetic time for NASP. Um, it's been nice to have a federal government that recognizes mental health providers and wants to support. I mean, I can remember back during the presidential debates when Joe Biden mentioned school psychs and people were just like losing their mind that we were, we were mentioned in a debate, um, with that. And so it's nice to see that that's the part of their focus right now. And so I think here in Texas, We can only hope that come January, uh, when our legislatures come back to town and work, um, that we can continue to see some, you know, positive, um, you know, fallout from that as well here in Texas. You've been involved in this level of advocacy for over 20 years. What kind of things would you, uh, what kind of tips would you give us as we're preparing for this next legislative session, um, as as our senators and representatives are, are getting ready to come back to Austin, you know, show up, you know, and, and I don't and I don't mean just, you know, physically in Austin, but, you know, show up with your written comments, contact your legislators. And I know. You know, I've taken many a person to the Capitol. I've also sat with many a person when we say call your representative and people think that it's this scary thing, um, but it's not. Um, It literally takes 30 seconds. Um, And usually, you very rarely actually get your congressperson on the phone. (laughs) You get their their, um, young 20-something-year-old staffer on the phone, and all they really want to know is your name, your zip code to verify that you're a resident of whatever district, you know, that you've called, and then just yay or nay. Are you in favor of it? Are you in opposition? And especially here in Texas, numbers matter. And that's literally what these 20-year-old staffers do is take tally marks. And then they report back to their, you know, representative or their senator. We got 400 phone calls in favor of it, but 1,600 against it. So the the public is not wanting you to be in favor of it. And so it's simply a numbers game. Having been involved in advocacy for a while, my peeps (laughs) know me. So of course, when, when I call, they're like, oh yes, Ashley, you know, so I, I get maybe a minute with them instead of just 30 seconds. Um, but um, yeah, I, the big thing is 
when people get fired up about something, instead of just ranting about it, say on social media, you know, email your Congress people, um, your representative, your senator, because that's what matters when they hear from the public. When they don't hear from us, they think it's not a that that it's a non-issue, so they don't they don't invest their time in it. Well, Ashley, thanks for for all you do for us uh, here in Texas um, on the national level for representing us and then also for for keeping us informed. If you don't get Ashley's monthly e-newsletter, how can uh, how can somebody get a hold of that, Ashley? Yeah, if, they, if they're not, they should be getting it. If you're a NAS member, you should be getting it from me. But um, if you don't, you can definitely email me and I will make sure that NASP has got your updated contact information. That's generally why people don't have it is they've changed emails or your work email has marked it as spam um, with that. So definitely um, reach out, email me, um, and I can make that happen. Let's switch over to uh, some more local issues. Today, you uh, spent some time in downtown Austin. You had a busy day. Tell us about that. Yeah, so today was a specially called TSBEP meeting. I've been attending them for over 10 years. Um, And so this one was unique. Uh, It was not part of their quarterly meeting. It was called um, because of the tragedy in Uvalde and, you know, legislators wanting to address this issue of mental health providers. So TSBEP called it, they wanted to really think outside the box and really review the rules, review the occupations code. And are there any current statues or rules that are, you know, putting up barriers to access for folks becoming, you know, a a psychology licensee with that. And so first one they wanted to talk about was the jurisprudence exam. And that one I, I found interesting. The jurisprudence exam is currently online. It is an open book test. The pass rate is 90%. I'm old school. When I took it, it was still in paper form, a little booklet that they mailed you and you had to like flip through the pages to find the answers. Uh, I I will admit I am a tad jealous of folks that take it now and have the advantage of control F uh, to find things in there because that was not uh, in the day. Of course, I know we may have some listeners that actually had to take it when they they would show up in Austin. Like you had to go to take it there uh, with the book and take it. So um, it's nerve wracking. It's like the SAT. Yeah, right? <laughs> I got to do it at home, um, and I am a member of the 89 Percenter Club, which is a very stressful club. That's one point away from passing it the first time, so you have to go back and pay for it again. But <laughs> yeah, so that's so what it was is with BHEC, the Behavioral Health Executive Council that oversees TSBP, um, the LMFT board, the LPCs, and the Social Worker Board. Their jurisprudence exam is a no-fail exam. So you take it if you get the question wrong, it's like try again, you know, you get to like select, you select something besides C to see if it works um, with that. They were wondering if that might be a barrier to people. And I've not had an intern of mine not pass it on the first time. I do know people that it, they have taken it. It's been, they have had to take it multiple times. It, from my personal experience, it's been people that just struggle with test-taking strategies, you know, have a lot of test anxiety, that that's why they don't get the 90% on the first time. I really don't feel it's a, it's a competency issue. So TSBP wanted to talk about it. So they had they had some data there, and uh, Daryl Spinks, uh, executive director of BHEC, did mention <laughs> that our licensees were the ones that um, are the ones that are not the most successful on this jurisprudence exam. Uh, with that, 
we are the ones with the multiple retakers um, on that. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. And that's, you know, they talked about what is truly the purpose of the jurisprudence exam. TSBEP has always viewed it as a gatekeeper for competency. The other people have just viewed it as making sure you know about the field, not as a gatekeeping type of opportunity. So, you know, the meeting today was really, it was unique in the sense that this is the first time ever that they truly were just soliciting the opinion of the public and the state associations um, before their next regularly scheduled quarterly meeting in August. So nothing truly resulted from today. They really just wanted to start, you know, hearing from the public, hearing some ideas. And is there something they could do? Is it truly a barrier to getting people, you know, having people licensed? I'm not aware of anybody that, you know, after they took it eight or nine times, were like, I'm done and decided not to pursue their license. They've just had to continually pay the expensive fee, take it again and, until they ultimately pass. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing is, especially for school psychs, because there's so few questions that are about school psychology on the jurisprudence exam. And I think that's, I'm curious if that's why we are the highest, have the highest failure rate, you know, with that is that folks go in thinking it's going to be about school psychology and then realize, it's really not um, with that. So I, I don't know, Brooke, you know, you're a, you're a graduate educator, kind of what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a test of how to, how to search Google. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a control F test. Yeah, That's yeah. just like yeah. Ashley said. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, and, and maybe, maybe if we're teaching people how to, you know, I, it's kind of like one of the things that we always do is let's show you how to use the legal framework. Um, and so I want to show you how to find board rules. So yeah, and that very thing was brought up, you know, because one of the, the board members did comment, it's open book, you know, mm-hmm. and so is it that people just don't know how to look in the rule book for the rules, you know, so yeah, that that, that was an interesting take. On- so did TASP have a position on it? So TASP, um, we were, you know, we weren't real strong with it. We were going to support the no-fail exam. I did have a chance prior to the meeting. Um, I spoke with TPA. What was their stance going to be on it? They were kind of like us, that it's a open book exam, you know? Um, and so they didn't have a strong opinion. They did not comment on that. And you did not see TASP comment because once I heard TPA wasn't going to comment, I was like, let's bring it back, you know, and I, because I really felt it needed to be a a database decision, you know, domain number one. And I, you know, I had no idea what the failure rate was. So I have to say, sitting there in the audience hearing Daryl tell us the the numbers, I was like, wow, that, that was impressive. (laughs) So, yeah. I I have a quick question. This may be for Brooke. Brooke, how do you guys prepare your students for it? We don't. Um, <laughs> <they> fail it. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, what I do is I basically compile the study material links, um, and provide it to our students and say, look, this is where the, where it's going to come from. And so go ahead and open up these tabs on your browser. And when you get the test, uh, you can, you've got two weeks to take it and complete it. So, so, but that's, that's virtually it. My biggest concern with it is make sure they have their rule book. There are some items that come from the family law, you know, the family code section, um, other different other codes besides the occupations code. And so those are the ones that I find to be the the trickiest because we don't 
cover a lot of that uh, in our in our law classes. We cover IDEA and we cover FERPA and we cover ADA and um, you know we cover codes of ethics, but we don't really cover other state statutes. Yeah, and you know, and I've had this discussion before with people. Is I is I wonder if people are actually looking in the rule book for answers versus just using Google. And I hate to be like that, but I just think in the age of an online assessment and you, you know, it's, it's open book that people literally just like search Google for the answers and don't stick to the rule book, the family code and like the other, I mean, like that's it. Like yep. you should. And I think, I think I, I, I just question whether sometimes the resources they're using are the wrong resources. Mm-hmm. So what else did they want to know from you? Yes. So the other thing up was whether the occupations code operates as an unreasonable barrier to appropriately trained LPs and LPAs by requiring them to be duly licensed as an LSSP before delivering school psych services. This one was unique because what I found interesting about it is the LP and the LPA license was well established uh, before the LSSP license came into be in 1995. And so to me, when you create a new license, you're creating it with the understanding and the acknowledgement that there's a unique skill set that this group of people bring that these other group of people don't have. You know, we feel that you know, and it's, it's been noted even in the APA Model Licensing Act um, about us with our unique skill set, just with our own standards that are different from LP standards, um, our own ethics code, our, you know, graduate education uh, crediting authority is a different body um, with that. So TASP did take the position that it was not an unreasonable barrier or, you know, if you're going to practice in the schools and provide the broad range of school psychological services, you should have that LSSP credential because the rule book, TSBEP already has rules that, you know, that school districts can contract out for specific services, you know, like counseling services, things like that. So folks, you know, with the LP can come into the school and, and, and do that, but they're just not allowed to provide the broad range of school psychological services. So when you think about what TSBEP's core mission is, is to protect the public. It's by prohibiting, you know, licensed professionals from engaging in work that they're not appropriately trained to participate in. So, you know, we've, we've taken the attitude that if you want to come over in our sandbox, you've got to have the right credentials for that. What, could you tell how that was received? You know, that one, it was interesting. At the very beginning, I thought it was well received. You know, they were like, oh, yes, yes. And then, as the day kind of drug on and <laughs> they started thinking more outside the box, I think they started thinking about possible avenues for that because we had, you know, one board member, Dr. Becker, who's an LP. She had done her internship in the schools. She worked in the schools, but she wasn't eligible for the LSSP credential because her graduate coursework did not have enough courses in education. And so that's what, you know, she was trying to get at is what is the definition of appropriately trained LPs and LPAs? Uh, And my argument for that is, you know, a minimum of 60 graduate hours, a 1200 hour internship with at least 600 being in the schools, and then your graduate education is in line with our NAS professional standards. I'm going to follow up with Dr. Becker about that um, because, you know, when she said she didn't have the education coursework, I'm like, well, that's 
that's a huge part of what sets us, you know, apart and makes us unique to be a school psychologist versus a clinical psychologist with that. So it, it kind of sounds like that you were just reinforcing um, our graduate standards for the school psychological preparation. <laughs> yes, pretty much. <laughs> and, our, and it's important to, to recognize that our rules also state that the rules shall be current um, with the NASP standards or yes, nationally recognized standards. Standard. Yeah, yeah, so funny you bring that up, Brooke, um, because that was another item that they that was on the agenda today was there was a discrepancy between the Occupations Code and the TSBEP rules uh, regarding coursework, and they list out certain competencies. And that part had not been updated since 1999 uh, with that. So TASP took the position, we, since the rules already say it must be in line with the nationally recognized standards, that we actually change it to just simply say that and not list out specific graduate coursework um, for that. Um, and so that was a, a part that needed updating. Um, and so TASP is ready to propose a rule at the August meeting, hopefully to, to fix that. Uh, Chair Balamowitz seemed okay with that. So I'm feeling pretty positive that we can get that in there and make that change. And, and I think that's part of what it is, is, you know, they make changes throughout the years and then they don't go back and see what rules might conflict with that or don't line up. Um, and so they, they do a lot of cleanup um, at their TSBP meetings when it comes to proposed rules. A lot of them are cleanup rules. And then they were also asking what we thought about LSSPs practicing outside of the schools. Yes. So this one is probably the one that got our listeners uh, to comment on uh, the most uh, with that. I, I know me personally, I heard from a lot of people on this particular one uh, with that. So TSBEP has already in their rules, uh, rules regarding competency and that you only practice in the area, you know, that you're competent for. Well, for LSSPs, it has been um, a complicated matter when you see reports coming in to the school uh, by other professionals um, that don't meet the school requirements. You know, a lot of LSSPs you know, would get into the get into the schools and then decide they wanted to do something else or they want to practice independently. And then they would go get the LPA license. Well, those rules changed um, God, I, five, six, seven years ago now, maybe. And the stumbling block now for LSSPs trying to go get your LPA is that during that you had to have been supervised during your internship by an LP. Um, and so for a lot of LSSPs, you were supervised in your internship by an LSSP. You, maybe you got lucky and that person happened to be duly licensed. And so those people then went and were able to apply for that. And so that's, that's kind of been the stumbling block. What, what people I don't think quite understand is when we say practice outside the school, what do you really mean um, with that? Um, because if I'm going to you know, hang my own shingle and say that I'm qualified to diagnose um, a 45-year-old man with schizophrenia, that's different than the phone call I got this week of somebody saying, hey, my school district can't get to my dyslexia evaluation that I want for my child. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's what we have to 
think about is, you know, it's not so much the setting in which you're providing those services. I think it is it related to their school services that I do think LSSPs can do. Um, but, you know, I haven't cracked open a DSM since grad school. You know, I take that back when the DSM five came up, came out. I did crack it open uh, with that, um, but I certainly haven't looked into it. I, I think that's a real issue that folks get excited about. Hey, we want to practice ind independently because we see DIAGs doing it, for example. Yes, we do. And, yeah. you know, and we we have far superior training than diagnosticians do with that. And, you know, just the training requirements are different. But DIACs can go out and hang their shingle up and be just fine with that. And so I think that's where when we really think about what is in our scope of practice, you know, we have to be careful with saying, do we want to practice independently or can we provide services related to the school context outside of the school building? I think those are two very different things, you know, because if you want to practice independently, you, you weren't trained for that. You, you were trained to be a school psychologist. If you want to practice independently, then you need to follow the path of an LPA um, or an LP um, with that. And I know given the current burnout and stress level of school psychologists in Texas, this is, su this is super frustrating. It's super frustrating um, that you don't have options available to you that other licensees do. Um, so this one generated a lot of comment. They were wanting to, you know, talk about this. They had even, they talked briefly even for going back to that LPA rule and allowing, you know, changing it that if your internship was supervised by an LSSP or an LP, you could, you know, get grandfathered into the LPA license. So that was not decided. That's still being discussed. I'm curious how that turns out. But, you know, I think for the listener, what you really have to think about when you, when you say I want to practice outside the schools is think about what you were trained in and you in the broad range of school psychological services and how does that fit in with what exactly you want to do outside of the school building. Yeah, and I, I've been vocal um, about this because I feel like that this change, uh, and this is, pers this is personal opinion, not task position, but I feel like that the change could exacerbate the, the shortage problem. But as I hear you talk about it, I'm also thinking, well, what if, what if it could uh, prevent some people from actually, or, or reduce the likelihood that they leave the schools because now they've got the option to practice on the weekends or in a hospital setting in a emergency room um, or during the summers um, providing some some counseling services or providing some type of parent consultation in a in a private setting um, yeah I mean you know and the state of California does it and that's what you know I, I had to spend a lot of time educating TSBP board members about how School psychologists are credentialed here in the state of Texas and how we're unique in that. Um, we, are, we are the sole state that, it, that our psychology board is the sole credentialing authority for school psychologists. Every other state, it, you, you go and get a certificate from your state board of education. So in California, for example, you go and get your pupil services certificate as a school psychologist. But then they have, after three years of practice, if you want to provide, you know, school psychological services outside the school building, you then go to the psychology board in California, 
take another exam. I'm assuming like the our jurisprudence exam. And if you pass that, then you're given the licensed education psychologist license. But those rules are very strictly written to providing parent consultation to help with family school collaboration. You know, it is very uh, explicitly delineated that it, it's school psychological services that you are providing. Um, and so that you know, that I can kind of wrap my head around. And again, this is Ashley, not TASP. I can, I can wrap my head around that um, because, you know, when I was asked to do a dyslexia evaluation here in the summer, that'd have been nice. I could have, you know, I could have done that. And I can promise you any district would have been way happier to receive my dyslexia evaluation than from a private, you know, provider who's not quite familiar with the fun that is dyslexia mm -hmm. in Texas public schools right now. Mm -hmm. do, do you know, do you know about the, the rules there in California? Does, uh, well, not the rules, but do you know if, um, I mean, can LEPs or licensed educational psychologists, can they bill insurance companies? Okay. They can't, they can, they don't, you know, they don't, um, they've had a lot of trouble with that because a lot of insurance companies don't recognize that LEP license. So I know CASP always does a couple of sessions at their convention about that uh, as far as assistance with that. And it's a, it is a stumbling block and not every, you know, school psychologist in California also has their LEP license, mm -hmm. you know, um, with that. So I think that's, that's what I like as well is that it's an option, you know, it's not an automatic, it's an option that if you want to pursue that, um, then you can, you can, you know, look to that as an yeah. avenue. Well, you, you would think that if it generates more fees, TSBP will look into it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so. All right. Anything else you want to give us an update on? Is there, was there anything else, uh, that happened in the in the board meeting today? No, you know, I, I will say um, the title change did come up. The issue about title change did come up. I, I was I was uh, very restrained. I was not going to bring it up, well, they but they were brought it about up. about obstacles, weren't they? <laughs> exactly. They went there. Uh, so since they went there, I went there. And I thought it was interesting um, that the chair, who's a public member, very much seemed in favor of it. And then I also found it unique um, that several board members, when talking about us, used the term school psychologist. And um, because then when they tried to use the term LSSP, they did what 99.9% .9 of the public does and stumbles over the letters and could not correctly recall them in the correct sequence. So, you know, I think there might be some momentum about that because it's not just the issue with the title change is it's an identity thing. You know, people don't know those services exist in the schools because the term school psychologist in Texas isn't well known like doctor or nurse. As I said in my testimony, nobody grows up and says, I want to be an LSSP when I grow up because they don't know that term. Yeah. Um, but we could have high school students say, I want to be a school psychologist when I grow up. That is an issue that Chair Bolamowitz really took heart to. Um, and so, you know, listeners, stay tuned. We will, as as always, TASP will be fighting for that in the next legislative session. Perhaps now we have some momentum behind it this time. So that's exciting. Anything that we need to be doing uh, between now and the next board meeting? You know, between now and the next board meeting, um, no, uh, TASP will be proposing the rules the rulemaking process in Texas is an arduous process. Um, and so we have to propose the rule in August. Um, and then if they are in favor of it, then they will take public comment after that. 
and before their next meeting, which would be in November. Um, so what I would say to listeners is just stay tuned to your emails. I know the time period between September and November is quite the busy season for us, um, but we sure would appreciate your support when we send out those emails asking you to make comment um, on the proposed rules. So stay tuned. Um, but for right now, between now and August, you know what? Just enjoy enjoy your summer. That And thanks to everyone who did uh, give a public comment today. I do know that they got several more than usual. So shout out to everyone who gave a public comment. This is just a good time to say renew your TASP membership or join TASP if you're not, because so many people are always asking, what does TASP do for me? What What's the value of it? And guys, it's more than just a reduced conference or summer institute fee. You've actually got somebody who's being who, who's being listened to. And, and so the TASP needs uh, membership dues in order to do what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And as NASP delegate, I have seen the numbers uh, of the NAS membership from Texas has increased over my term, over my three years as delegate term. And so I, I would like for our TAS members to show up as well. Um, I mean, we've increased it from about 200 NAS members in the last three years. So TAS would love to have 200 more members. So Yeah, absolutely. And real quick, Brooke, before we move forward, you weren't the only TAS board member there, right, Ashley? So no, I um, also in attendance today was our lovely government and professional relations chair, Amanda Fifi, who has been, she's actually at the Capitol more than I am nowadays. Uh, she was at the Senate hearing um, when they did a mental health hearing in relation uh, to the Uvalde shooting. She's been at the finance committee. I mean, she's, Amanda is the one you will probably most likely see at the Capitol. So uh, snaps to Amanda as well for a great job today as well. Yeah, I just want to make sure everybody got their due diligence. Um, Brooke, any other questions about this before we kind of get to the closing here? We just appreciate all you've done, Ashley, and, and continue to do for for the kids of texas it's all about the children right it's all (laughs) about the children so ashley has been on this before um and we have given her her own lightning round of questions but we have mixed it up for season two ashley so don't worry it's nothing crazy but they are different ones i hope (laughs) i'm be honest i haven't memorized what everybody had to say last year but all right so favorite vacation spot the beach any beach any beach just in general any beach in general, you know, toe, toes in the water, ass in the sand. <laughs> what is your, what is your biggest like physical fear? I, I will, my close friends will tell you that I, I am pretty fearless. I'm a risk taker. I don't, I didn't, mm, I, I don't know that I have a, a physical fear. No. I, your physical fear is not having a fear, which is your, yeah, right. Yeah, what if you got fear. one one day? That was your yeah. fear. Right? Yeah, exactly. That would be my fear to have a fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was your first like paycheck job? My first paycheck job was uh, dressing up as the Easter bunny at the Longview mall. Uh, I, I loved it. That, that was my first paycheck. What was, was the interview like? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, you know, it was, yeah, I, I thought I was just going to be the helper bee, uh, with taking the photos with the Easter bunny. Uh, so I guess I did okay. And, um, but yeah, they're like, you know what? Cause they thought, um, I think they were, put off by my vertical impairment. Um, and, um, and so I finally got to put on the suit one day and they saw just what a great bunny I was. And so that, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, um, scaring people. Then I tap them on the shoulder in the Longview mall, uh, with being the Easter bunny. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Hey, what's your biggest pet peeve? 
my biggest pet peeve is people just griping about something and not doing anything about it. Oh, so like most of people, right? <laughs> <laughs> Today, 2022. <laughs> not like Ashley Arnold, who <laughs> complains about these things and then goes to the Capitol exactly. and advocates for us, right? <laughs> How often do you travel a year? Oh, a, a lot now, a, a lot now with the new job. Uh, I, a lot, I'd, I'd say um, most weeks I probably yeah. am, am, am gone. I, I do have a slow period right now, beginning of July. Um, but yeah, I was in South Padre for two weeks in a row. I was in El Paso, um, home for three weeks, then Austin uh, conference, Wichita Falls, you know, um, Northeast ISD in San Antonio. So yeah, I travel a lot. Yeah, well, you know, you get to do it because you have, you have good stuff you need to let us know about. And our final question is a question we're asking everybody this season. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? Absolutely not. Oh, oh, oh. the confidence was there. And I thought you were going to say yeah. absolutely. And then you yeah. slid in the knot at the end. Well done. Thank you, Ashley Arnold. Thank no. you. Thank you. Brooke, are you okay with that answer? I am not a, uh, I am, I am not the judge of these answers, <laughs> at least until the last episode. There we go. Then we'll all, we will, the whole panel will give their opinion on the question. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank Ashley Arnold for joining us again. We need to make this an annual thing at this point. You're yeah. coming on every season, but we need to get an episode where you're not talking about this type of stuff and maybe something else. Cause you have so much knowledge. Right. And I feel like every time you've come on, it's all been about something laws or bills or something so next time we'll do mdrs all right remember, <laughs> remember to follow our official task facebook and instagram accounts at txasb where you can get all the up-to-date info on what is happening in our field and what the board is currently up to you can also email us at podcast at txasp.org if you have any questions comments uh harsh criticism whatever you got we'll listen to it or not and if you want us to keep producing content please go give us five stars please subscribe to us please leave us a review and remember Remember, make good choices. <laughs>